We still have to name them. You want to name all of them right now? All right. We'll name uh, this half Marlon Jr. and then this half Coral Jr. Okay, we're done. I like Nemo. Nemo? Well, we'll name one Nemo, but I'd like most of them to be Marlon Jr. Are you ready? Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mouse Madness, a podcast dedicated to bracketing all things Disney. I'm Chris Bowersox. And I'm Kyle Skinner. And we're your hosts for Mouse Madness. Each episode will focus on a single Disney topic, generate a bracket, and debate our way through the madness to figure out who or what is truly the best. Follow us and play along on Twitter at Mouse Madness Pod or send us an email at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com. Chris, we are back and we have quite the exciting announcement. It is big news. This has been a, a long plan in the works and we finally got it off the ground. We are on Patreon. And if you've not heard of Patreon, Patreon is a platform that allows fans to support the work of podcasters and other creators. Uh, on on this app on this website and you can help us by supporting us and we will be able to keep the lights on here at this main show because one thing that podcasters don't always remember is that this stuff costs money <laughs> it costs money for us to run this show costs money for us to host it a lot of time goes into us bringing you those quality takes and so there, here's your opportunity to support if you ever felt like it um here are the details because not only will you be able to just support us directly, but by supporting us, you will unlock bonus content. So we have one tier. If you go on to Patreon, we have one tier, and that tier is called Jerry's Gang. Yup, Jerry is back. Gotta represent. Represent for our boy. Jerry's boring. back, baby. As a part of Jerry's Gang, Jerry being arguably the greatest Pixar character in the Pixar universe, of course, playing some chess, fixing up Woody. You know him. You love him. As a part of Jerry's gang, you will receive two to three monthly bonus episodes of various topics. And I will tell you that one of our first bonus episodes contains a story in which I explain how I saw someone getting knocked out at Small World in Disneyland. <laughs> so, because of course, because of course, of course. literally the opposite of it's a small yeah, world. It, <laughs> person did not ride the ride. No, clearly, did not even make it. So we're gonna those bonus episodes are gonna be of all sorts of topics. It's gonna be story times, it's gonna be unboxings, it's gonna be anything that doesn't really fit the mold of this main show. We're gonna be doing some bonus episodes two to three every single month. That's not all. You will also have the opportunity to choose bracket topics for upcoming brackets. We have a Discord channel that's forever going to be open. Anyone can join our Discord. But on Patreon. Jerry's gang gets to actually vote on what bracket topics we're going to do next, and we have to do them. It is up to Jerry's gang to decide the future of the brackets, and we're so excited to get you all involved in that way. Also, we're going to be uploading all of the video recordings of these episodes. There's a lot of times in which like, we're showing stuff or we make facial expressions <laughs> that we react to over audio, but no one knows what we're actually talking about. Well, now you can go timestamp it, try and search it out. We're going to upload all of these video recordings onto the Patreon for your watching enjoyment if you ever 
wanted to see how we how we record this this crazy crazy show. And then last but not least, we are going to host a quarterly Disney trivia night. Chris had been doing this throughout this pandemic. He had been bringing together a group of friends. He was putting together four rounds of trivia for us uh, and which we did over Zoom. And we're going to bring that to Jerry's gang. Everybody in Jerry's gang is going to be invited to a quarterly Disney trivia night uh, hosted by Chris or myself. And it is going to be a ton of fun. Super excited about this upcoming chapter of the Mouse Madness podcast. Patreon will not change our main show, however. This absolute mess of a podcast will still be free for everyone who's listening on the regular feed. Um, still be weekly uploads with brackets starting every other week. Um, Patreon only unlocks the bonus content, stuff that we're really excited to produce, stuff that we're really excited to uh, create and share with you all. So to join Jerry's gang, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash mouse madness, or you can go on Patreon and use the search bar and just search mouse madness. You will find our page there. There's only one tier, only one spot. You click that five bucks a month button, you'll be able to get all of this bonus content. So we hope to see you over there because we have a ton in store for you. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but we also have quite a bit of fun in store for today's episode because this bracket, part one and two, of the best Disney death. We are going dark side. It is spooky season. We're going to talk a little death and to do, help us do that. We have a first time guest host. It is Emily. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I can't forget, we have a veteran sitting back seat for this guest hosting. It is our boy, Michael. Michael, what's up? What's up, foolish mortals? <laughs> We got we got a tag team duo helping out with this part one guest hosting. Michael, we know all about you. We it's good to see you. We're happy to have you back on this. But Emily, first time guest host, tell us about your Disney fandom. How how did that begin? How does it live and exist now? Um, so not to get like all serious or whatever, but I am born and raised in Florida, and so I kind of grew up on it. But we have this. Um, it's kind of equivalent to make a wish in North Florida. It's called dreams come true. And so I was able to use um, my wish on going to Disney when I was little. And so it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's just really special to me and I get to look back at those pictures. And, you know, now I'm at this point where, you know, I'm not a little kid anymore, but I still love going, you know, and, um, I got to move to Orlando a couple of years ago and I've had my AP for, I don't know, a handful of years. And I, uh, I literally am going to the parks tomorrow because if we want to talk about um, tragic deaths, it's the death of happily ever after. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going tomorrow because it ends, I think on Wednesday or whatever day it is, but, but for the last time tomorrow, I, it's one of my absolute favorite things that Disney's ever done. And then they just were like, nope, sorry. RIP to uh, Jordan Fisher's track on <laughs> Happily Ever After. Oh, but with every death, there is a birth. Are you going to the birth of Space 220? Are you going to go eat up in space? <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I have, it could be a whole other podcast, but I, <laughs> I 
got a a crazy fear of space that started on Space Mountain. So it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. <laughs> but no, I will not be participating. I will not be eating there. I will be staying very, very far away. <laughs> There's a lot to dive in there, and I we're gonna have to have you back for whatever space themed episode we have, so that we can really oh, get great. into. <laughs> all right. Well, um, to help us get through this bracket, just like all the others, we need a few spoonfuls of sugar to help us. Kyle, what are you drinking in Oakland today? Oh, it's homemade cocktail time here in Oakland. I went into the bar. I promised, promised I would do it, and I did it again. This is going to be an experiment because I made this in about 15 minutes. So this is a drink that I found sort of online, like not really the ingredients I just had. And and I looked to see if this drink existed. There's some like bootleg recipes for it. But what it is, is I put together one and a half ounces of gin one and a half ounces of white rum, and then an ounce of control, which is like triple sec, basically. Mix that up, put it in a shaker, shake that bad boy up. And then I was like, this seems a little, you know, it's not going to be the sweetest thing because of the gin. Control's going to make it a little, a little sour, a little citrusy. So I did a little, mm, a little, mm, little splash of grenadine. So it's, it's pink and I'm calling it the bing bong banger because mm. i i it's mm. pink like bing bong uh, bing bong's on this bracket i'm gonna give it a taste right now nope Mm-mm. don't do it don't <laughs> do it this tastes like hand sanitizer like this oh, is what no. hand sanitizer would taste like it is awful i have made a mistake uh i will not be making this again bing bong banger big two thumbs down from this guy chris what have you got can't imagine the drink is any worse than the character, but um, y'all, I, I it's been a hot minute since I uh, allowed myself the freedom Hell to yeah. buy a new sour beer. But I oh. finally, I made time for myself today to head to Bevmo, which is not a location I get to go to very often. But now I live down the street from one, and uh, it's going to change my life. So I went ahead and picked up a sour ale. It is from Wild Barrel Brewery, which is based in my homeland of San Diego, California. It is a Vice Mango Lychee Sour <laughs> Ale, which okay. um, if y'all don't know what a lychee is, it is a fruit that is not very attractive looking. It looks kind of like a white grape hidden inside like a brown like bark mm. ball. Um, but lychee flavored things are really good, especially like lychee candy. Um, so I'm really kind of interested to see what this tastes like. Also, mango lychee is an interesting combination. So I can see this going really well or really not well. So let's, uh, let's give it a taste here. Oh, double, double sip. I, I taste neither mango nor lychee in that beer. It's not bad. Okay. It's just kind of like a generic sour fruit flavor. Um, it's fine. I don't know. 7.4 out of 10. Uh, I drink, I drink it again, but it's not blowing my mind. Um, Emily, what do you got over there? And I guess Michael, if you have one too, I don't know what you guys are doing over oh, there. Yeah. Oh yeah. You think I'd come without a spoonful of sugar? <laughs> I'm no rookie. 
yeah, I mean, we kind of kept it simple. We got, is it? Got some Maker's Mark yeah. and a little bit of Coke, and uh, we're going to call it the Whiskey Hellfire. Oh, Ooh. great choice. Great. I got chills. I got chills. <laughs> Cheers to the Whiskey Hellfire. All right, Chris, drinks are in hand. We're going to need them. It is time for Pull of the Pod. If you're just joining us like Emily is, I'll explain it to you. We have many packs of Disneyland 50th Anniversary Upper Deck cards that cover everything Disneyland, from attractions to debuts to rides to shows. Everything can be on these cards, but we're looking for one specific one, and that is Mr. Tom Morrow from Interventions, and it is a weird-looking card, and we know exactly what it's going to be like when we find it. But we haven't found it yet. This is like pack 13 or 14 and we're still going strong. So <laughs> will today be the day that we find Mr. Tom Morrow? Let's find out right now. Number first card of the pack is 1964's Swiss Family Treehouse. Mm. Mm. Now currently Tarzan's Treehouse. Uh, the description of this says the Disney family was able to salvage some of the items from their famous shipwreck. Thus, the treehouse contained a peculiar combination of fine European goods and primitive homemade jungle wares. Um, black and white photo of the treehouse basically looks very similar to how the Tarzan treehouse looks today. So we'll do it okay. Uh, I feel like we've pulled this card seven times already. It is 1969's debut attraction, The Haunted Mansion. We definitely, I feel like, pull some Haunted Mansion-related card in every episode. Almost every single episode, or at very least every single bracket. On the front is a semi-current-day photo of the Haunted Mansion. On the back is that great plaque that they put outside of the Haunted Mansion before it opened, when they just had the facade and it was there for like six years. And it was talking about how, I mean, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's just like, notice all ghosts and... Oh, Jesus, why did I commit to this? <laughs> notice all ghosts and restless spirits post post lifetime leases are now available in this haunted mansion and so this sign basically said like this is going to open soon book your reservation for a spot here we have spots for 1000 ghosts and of course when it opens there's room for one more so 1969's haunted mansion debut card we have got next one up 1956's tom sawyer island rats Transport so the, ride, technically. Tra technically transport ride. The the photo on the front isn't even a photo. It's it's a drawing of these rafts. So did this exist in its form? I don't know. Uh, the island rafts still kind of exist. I think that they're named after somebody else now. It might be like, it might be pirate rafts. I don't. I know. I think it's just um like rafts, rafts to, to pirates some, lair or something. Yeah, something like like that. Um, but yeah, this is uh, basically a transport ride that you could hop on and float over to Tom Sawyer's Island on the Rivers of America. And our final non-attraction poster card is not Mr. Tom Morrow. We will be back next time on part two with the pull of the pod. But it's 1955's Penny Arcade. Oh, kind of an underrated experience. I've been in there a few times and it's kind of quaint. Yeah, I'm into it. Um, the card on the the photo on the front says crystal arcade uh and so does the photo on the back and i'm assuming i don't even now i'm confused is that what it says today does it say crystal arcade but it's referred to as the penny arcade on the facade uh maybe something like 
people were confused that everything cost a penny, but it was really like $5 to play <laughs> right. one Maybe. thing. Maybe. I also have like three computers in front of me and I could look it up what it looks like today, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, hmm. The Penny Arcade still exists today. It's on Main Street. Uh, really, really, I love, I love this space at night. I love how it lights up with its big sign with popcorn lighting. It's, it's beautiful, but it's not Tom Morrow. And so our attraction poster is something I've never heard of. It's Space Station X-1 from Tomorrowland. This is in, in honor of Emily being on the show. We have a space-themed attraction poster. Did I, did I not talk about this on opening day attractions oh, in Miss the Dance? I might have, but okay. it was basically like um, a little exhibit that had like a fake overlook onto planet Earth, kind of like the oh. predecessor to Space 220, actually. It's like finally the technology is catching up with the concept. Wow. Yeah, you're right. And actually, this attraction poster uh, is one of the most popular collector's items with the last one debuting in 1993, apparently. It's so, a good design. It's a good design it's a on that design. poster. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's like a family looking out over the globe, over the world, but they're in this like what looks like a sky bucket, but in space. I don't know. It's great. It looks like a comic book cover. Uh, I really <laughs> like it. But like I said, it's not Tom Morrow. So we'll be back for part two of Pull of the Pod. All right. Every bracket needs a demographic and we've got a good one. It is Halloween time at all of the Disney parks. Tis the season for Oogie Boogie Bash and Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween Party. So we went with an appropriate demographic for this one. We sent the interns into that special event, gave them a little uh, raise, pay raise to uh, pay for that special event ticket. And they asked people taking photos with characters that they were also dressed as. We said... (laughs) We said, hey, funny photo. Great job, first of all. Second of all, what is the best Disney death? And we've got a bracket of 16 uh, very high-quality Disney deaths. There are a lot of deaths out there oh, in yeah. the universe of Disney. So we had to uh, make sure it was trimmed down. We're going Disney and Pixar only. No Star Wars deaths. No Marvel deaths. That could be Each one could be their own bracket. Even more, uh, body count is even higher <laughs> in those universes on a... Per 100,000 people <laughs> basis. True. Thanos freaking snapped half of the world. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, we'll talk about that later, by the way. Oh, um, interesting. But we've got a few, obviously, that missed the dance. Kyle, what are some Disney deaths that missed the dance for you? Number one, Judge Doom from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The very end, Judge Doom gets ran over by this like steamroller and he gets flattened back into his like cartoon form. And it is phenomenal. Uh, he gets flattened. He like blows himself back up uh, and ends up ends up dying uh, because he gets splashed with the goo. Uh, he gets he gets the goo all over him. He's melting like like <laughs> like a wicked witch. He's just melting into the goo. He's screaming his high pitched scream. I mean, you can't you can't go wrong with Judge Doom. But I understand people don't always remember that as a a Disney movie and be that character's death specifically. And then number two, Captain Barbosa. My guy died twice. <laughs> he dies in Curse of the Black Pearl at the very end. Tia Damo revives him at the end of the second movie. And then he dies in the fifth movie with the little self-sacrifice action. And there's some self-sacrifice action on this bracket, um, but Barbosa 
for me, obviously, being the Pirates guy, every time that I think about it, I think about him getting shot and he finally feels cold and dies. Great death, uh, even though he gets revived. So I can see why people might not consider it a Disney death since he does come back and then no one saw the fifth movie. Chris, what are a couple of deaths for you? Well, the first one is a fake-out death, and this character not only fake-dies once, but they fake-die twice. And this is a death that I personally love because I personally love the idea of this character dying, and that is Olaf. They tease me with the death of Olaf not once, but twice. They say, oh, he gone. Just kidding. Mm. He's back. He will never go anywhere. Uh, Obviously not going to make this bracket because he does not die. The other one for me is uh, Hans from (laughs) the Mighty Ducks movies, who is kind of like a side character. He's like the old guy that teaches Gordon Bombay how to play hockey and is kind of like a mentor character to the Ducks. He dies in the third Mighty Ducks movie. And it's actually a really great kind of like moment and great timing. And I, I look forward to talking more about death timing on this bracket, but it's when Charlie... Conway goes into like ultimate sad boy mode and he's like, "Um, I quit the hockey team. We're going (laughs) to skip school and go to the mall of America. And then he like, then he shows up at Hans's house and Hans is like, (coughs) (coughs) and Charlie's like, "Mm -mm, I hate it here. And Hans is like, well, you have to go be with your friends, Charlie. You are the, you are the heart of the ducks. (laughs) Don't let your friends slip away. Charlie's like, they're slipping away from me. And then he goes to leave. And Hans is like, ugh, ugh. And Charlie looks back at him and he's like, Hans, are you okay? And Hans goes, <laughs> yes, he does this yes. weird like eye bulge thumbs up thing that is like so weird. And then, and then oh he's dead, gosh. like literally two minutes later. Um, but it sets off this chain of events where... Charlie has to like reflect upon the advice that Hans gave him and it brings Gordon Bombay back into his life. And it's kind of like a ghost of Christmas future moment for Charlie Conway. And then he rejoins the ducks and saves the day. Uh, so yeah, death of Hans, uh, super memorable for me, super good death. Uh, Emily and Michael, do you all have any deaths that come to mind that did not make this bracket? Um, the one that I thought of was syndrome from in- the Incredibles. Okay. Yeah. I think just like in the scene alone, like he's all like, you betrayed me, Mr. Incredible. And so I'm going to take your baby and make him. <laughs> and then he like flies up to his jet. And then like the irony of it all is that he literally dies because of the cape and like, you know, the whole no gates. So I don't know. I thought that was uh, a good one. Do you have one? Um, yeah. So the, I thought just because I thought it was kind of an epic death and kind of, I was very surprised when I first saw it. Mr. Oogie Boogie Man. I thought mm-hmm. the whole unraveling and the fact that he was like made up of all these weird bugs and stuff and yeah. kind of the dramatic end of just stepping on that last bug that kind of made up who Mr. Oogie Boogie Man was. And, you know, spooky season. No, that's a good one. I like I like the, uh, the deaths that have good visual kind mm-hmm. of like satisfaction when you're watching them. That's definitely one of those. Um, all right, y'all, we've got our field of 16. We're ready to announce them. So we are going to go ahead and cue that dramatic music. Here we go. It was the shot heard round the world coming in at number one, the death 
of Bambi's mom from Bambi. Trauma traumatizing every 90s kid at the number two seed is the death of Mufasa from The Lion King. Adventure is no longer out there for the number three seed from Up, it's Ellie. Mrs. Joy, I don't feel so good. Dying at the number four seed is Bing Bong from Inside Out. I literally wrote that exact line in my notes. Word for word, Joy, I don't feel so good. This dude was destined for stardom. Coming in at number five from Princess and the Frog, it's Ray. Getting straight eated at the sixth seed is Kawa's baby from Tarzan. C is for Cookie. Also, the number seven seed, it's Coral from Finding Nemo. Giving bouldering a new name at the number eight seed is the evil queen slash old hag from Snow White. At least he went out with a bang. At number nine from Big Hero 6, it's Tadashi. She has a dream of restoring a heart, it's just not hers. Coming in at the number 10 seed is the death of Tala, Moana's grandma from Moana. A haunted mansion, but the 100th ghost <laughs> is Moana's grandma. When you go down into the graveyard, <laughs> over you is a huge manta ray. It just wasn't in the cards for the 11 seed. From Princess and the Frog, it's Dr. Facilier. He wants you to remember him, but he doesn't remember dying. At the number 12 seed, it's Hector from Coca. It's Sink or Swim for the 13 seed from the good dinosaur, Arlo's dad. This man is on fire. At the number 14 seed, it's Claude Frollo from Hunchback of Notre Dame. And it's Bye Bye Baby for the 15 seed from the Hunchback of Notre Dame, it's Quasimodo's mom. And ringing out in horror at the number 16 seed is Todd's mom from Fox and the Hound. All right, Emily and Michael. 16 Disney deaths on the bracket without telling us who might be one of your favorites. Uh, are there any matchups here that you're looking forward to? I don't know. That one's hard without giving away. <laughs> favorite. I don't know. Cause I, I went through and watched just all of the scenes by itself. Like yep. I was through 16 movies, but um, I was definitely sold on one. Like I had my initial thought. And then as I was going through them, I changed my mind. Mm, classic over with somebody and then I changed it back so <laughs> I'm very conflicted as to I guess how y'all will debate it see if I can be convinced one way or another sure yeah I'm I'm interested in seeing how we all kind of define what best Disney death is uh between the three of the four of us really uh because it can go either way and I think that's what's going to be fun about this one it's the arguments as to what makes the best Disney death. So let's hop right into it. All right, let's go. We've got the uh, the gun matchup. Oh. Bringing out the big guns for round one. <laughs> it's uh, number one, Bambi's mom versus number 16, Todd's mom. So Todd's mom was the one I had to go back to because yeah. Fox and the Hound's like a, a movie we don't really talk about a lot on this podcast. And one that I don't really go back and revisit a lot, a lot either. Right. So I kind of had to go back and like, his mom dies in that movie? I don't even, <laughs> I don't even remember that. Only and, in the longest title sequence in the history of title sequences. Oh my, like talk about undermining a really tragic moment in this character's <laughs> origin. It's like, okay, we have to kill the mom off to give, to establish his like orphancy. Mm -hmm. let's, let's just run it during the titles. We'll have like 
presented by Wolfgang Reitherman, like right. while she's trying to escape with a baby in her mouth. And that'll <laughs> really up the emotional intensity of, course. of this moment. Of course. Uh, yeah, that aspect was really frustrating to me. I couldn't even really focus on what was happening. It was very distracting. A lot of times when a character dies that is that has some relationship with the hero, you're supposed to kind of like empathize with the hero's loss. And right. that can like add to a character's motivation or in this case, like a character's backstory. But we don't know Todd at all in this moment. He's just a cute baby fox. He's just a cute baby fox and the mom dies. It's like, yeah, that's really sad. But like, I don't really know this baby right now. So I can't really feel Bro, that. Come get your yeah, baby, like dog. Sad. Just, come get yeah, your baby. I mean, Mick Bama's like, come get your baby, dog. Why is your baby looking at me? <laughs> so it, I guess it, it's sad, but not as impactful as it could be. Okay. Really, this Todd's mom death is just a less good version of Bambi's mom's death, <laughs> which is kind of like the same thing where you have uh, a hunter killing the mom, but we have seen Bambi with his mom for half of the movie already. So we get a little bit of their relationship before this tragic event happens. Um, not so much that we feel bad for the mom. We do a little bit, but more so like we feel bad for Bambi because Bambi's mom was uh, so comforting and watched over Bambi's growth that we've seen so far in the movie. I mean, Bambi's mom's death is, wait for it, iconic. Oh. I think... If you ask someone, like, what's Bambi about? I don't know that they'd be able to pull any plot points out of their head for you, but they would be able to pull out. I don't know, but there's a deer and mom gets shot. <laughs> yeah. I have Those no are idea. the two things I know about Bambi. I have no idea. And I think that's how the movie ends. And it's not, like, at all. <laughs> right. It's, uh, it's a very weird kind of, like, time, right? Because, like, mm -hmm. normally uh, someone dies at the beginning, like in Fox and the Hound, and it sets up a character or dies closer to the end of the movie. And it's like this, like, whoa, final thing that the character has to overcome or it's a villain. And it's like the final, finally vanquished. This this death happens like right in the middle of the movie. And then, and then it just keeps going and like never <laughs> looks back, <laughs> no. uh, which is really like not what a normal movie does and like not how a normal movie uses death. But, Bambi, I think, is supposed to be a very like realistic depiction of like animal life in the forest. And I think it's trying to say that that's just kind of like a normal thing that happens. Like when once you once you reach puberty, which is what Bambi is doing here, uh, yeah. you don't need you don't need your mom anymore. Right. Uh, all in all, I'm advancing Bambi's mom simply for the iconicness and the the slightly uh, more emotional impact. There's. A lot of, I mean, the title sequence in Fox and the Hound is frustrating because it's so long that you have to just kind of sit with, there's not even like a score behind it. It's just kind of like forest noises and you see some title sequences and you're waiting for something to happen. And then finally, this like chase scene takes place in which you see Todd's mother just like frantically running away uh, from what we can already kind of assume is probably hunters, right? You hear the dogs barking, you kind of get the, the sense that they're running away from hunters and then todd's mom comes by and drops todd behind a a post uh that is like of a fence lining a of somebody's property runs away you hear the gunshot big mama the owl comes out and you can see it by the expression on her face that this is probably the end of todd's mother right but you're right there is no real establishment of who todd is other than a really cute fox and you feel 
awful for this cute fox. Like, super, I mean, baby foxes. Come on. (laughs) Come on. Just as cute as can be. And you see this one get abandoned, and you're like, man, this sucks. This is sad. Um, But what's funny is that it, it doesn't really let you sit on the death for very long. I mean, like, Big Mama's, like, trying to console the baby fox and trying to get the baby fox to warm up to her, and it happens fairly quickly. And then you go right into boomer and his boy and it's now all of a sudden it's like it's a comedy again right like there's no sort of like let's sit and mourn for a second it's like yeah a literal second and now it's time to get back into the slapstickiness which is fine bambi's mother had kind of hinted at the beginning that they can't be out in the field without like being aware of their surroundings right so that's the movie sets up that this is dangerous for them to do Bambi, stupid little kid, gets hungry and is like, this is a long winter. I need to eat. And Bambi's mom's like, there's not really food right now. You got to wait. So she takes him out and there's the saddest patch of grass. And she's like, all right, let's eat. They're in this middle of this empty meadow, chomping away at these bits of grass and bad, bad choice, bad choice, Bambi and your mom. They go off running, gunshot silence bambi calling for his mother like this this is a a death scene this is you see the morning of the child you hear you get the silence that you have to sit with for a little bit when you're comparing two off-screen mother gunshot deaths this one's not only impactful but also serves as a turning point for our character who then leaves this kind of childhood innocence behind and moves on into this like adulthood you also get to see Bambi's dad, which is like a really intense moment. Your mother can't be with you anymore. It's like, oh, shit. all right. Why? Well, well, damn. Well, da- all right, dad. Jeez, I thought usually Disney characters say that your your loved one's always with you. And this one's like, <laughs> no, nope. mama gone. Come grow she up gone. with me. Time to grow up. Uh, I'm with you. Number one's moving on. Emily and Michael, did we make the right choice with the number one seed moving past Todd's mother? I don't know. It might be a hot take, but I probably would have chosen Todd's mom. I think it just in the sense of maybe the lens of why they were killed, because, you know, like it's the winter and the hunter is probably looking for deer to eat. And, you know, it's just we talked about how, you know, like he's helping out the deer population. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize we had a Bambi killer sympathizer on the podcast Bambi's mom you know (laughs) um but for Todd's mom she is on the run she is protecting her baby she you know she knows what's about to happen so she makes sure that he is safe and she takes a sacrifice for her baby and also that hunter like you don't eat foxes so like what are you doing like I don't know like I for me scarf but (laughs) I don't know. Like I, I guess, you know, like if the Fox is being annoying, you shouldn't kill it. But if you got to eat, you got to eat. So like, I don't know. (laughs) We can talk more about Bambi later on, Mm -hmm. but uh, for Fox and the Hound, that scene just doesn't stick out in my mind. Um, There's so much more to that movie that I think comes to mind when I think of that movie and even more sad moments, especially when it comes to that movie, way more impactful. So 
Yeah, I, I guess Bambi gets through on this one, but uh, we can talk more on that later. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Such a sad friendship that they have to go through in Fox and the Hound. It's devastating. It's devastating. All right, let's move on to this next matchup. It is the number eight, Death of the Evil Queen in Snow White versus the number nine, Death of Tadashi from Big Hero 6. This isn't even a matchup. What is happening here? What is happening here? Evil Queen climbs up, uh, had just murked Snow White. Snow White's dead. She gone. Evil Queen's running away from the seven dwarves who are valiantly riding every forest creature that they can find to get to the evil queen who is escaping up this rainy cliffside that just happens to be somewhere near them. Evil queens running away, running away. Lightning storm, lightning storm. The, the dwarves seem to be climbing forever. And then suddenly the evil queen, much like Obi-Wan Kenobi, has the high ground. And she is going to go ahead and dislodge. I'm, I'm Star Wars guy now. I've, I'm so into it now. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> so proud. <laughs> um, and uh, she tries to dislodge this massive boulder to roll down the cliff and crush the dwarves. Just absolute massacre out in this German countryside that the evil queen is, is enacting. And instead, out of nowhere, <laughs> the largest lightning strike misses her, but takes the cliff away and she goes tumbling to her death with the boulder following her to the bottom of this cliff and she dies. That is the death. I will say epic if I may. Yeah. It's not the most epic. Yeah, the the it's in the lightning and the rain and yes. stuff and like the score swells a lot. Yes. It's very intense and the shriek the the, mm-hmm. the witch like cackle mm-hmm. on the way down like that like that's yes good. it's a very good villain death and it's the first of the animated movie deaths right it's the first movie it's the first death and it, it well first not death the first in death. Disney history well, wow Snow White kind of but Queen blew a three one lead and and died and then Snow White was brought back she blew a seven one lead mm-hmm. <laughs> oh boy um. Yeah, so that's that death. And then Tadashi is Hero's uh, brother in Big Hero 6. And there are a few moments in cinema history in which I am left just jaw on the floor. This death is one of them. Because you kind of get established with Hero and his brother as this like mentor, you know, little kid looking up to his big brother relationship. Big brother only wants the best for his little brother. They had just gone to this like tech convention in which Hero has made this nanotech that is going to kind of change the world. And he decides not to sell the the IP to that and instead go to college, which is what his like big brother wanted him to do. He trusted like he wanted to be more than just like selling out his technology and really make a difference in the world. And you're like, yes, it's these two brothers. They're going to they're going to go on to to create, you know, Baymax is a thing. We're going to make him into this, like maybe a superhero. Who knows if you hadn't seen the movie yet, um, but you've seen the trailers and you know that Baymax turns into this like superhero type. So how do we get there? I didn't know that they were just going to blow him up and just like, all right, now Hero has like this kind of vengeance thing that he needs to go on and and, you know, live for his brother and and revenge on his brother's death. And it was not only like 
quick. Like, you know how there's always the burning building scenes in movies where like the hero goes in and they're trying to save people and you go into the fire with them. And then like, if that hero dies, it's by like, because they inhaled smoke and passed out and then somebody else would come and like save them. I thought we were going to get into one of those. But the minute our boy steps into that front door, kaboom, done. What? And like how devastating, right? After having this like heart to heart moment with his brother about how proud he is of him, he's gone. That's it. And now Hero has to like, we sit with Hero afterwards and deal with the mourning cycle, right? And that is awful. And it's, 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 it's just massive. That death changed and influenced the rest of the movie while the evil queen's death didn't really because you could kind of assume that after if she let's say she escaped the dwarves right runs up the cliff rolls the boulder off dwarves are dead prince shows up and is like oh no i didn't get to see i didn't get to say goodbye to to this girl that i loved i'm gonna kiss her they would just wake up and be like oh we're in the cottage Let's go see where the dwarves are. And then they'll have to deal with the death of the dwarves. And that would have been the Disney death. But it's not. It's just the death of a villain, which is good in what it is. Um, But this moment in Big Hero 6 is just so much bigger uh, than that. So I'm going to go with the number nine seed here. Uh, I am going to agree with you. I think that if I was to like give someone the plot outline of Snow White, I would be like, Snow White meet some dwarves and then gets offered a poison apple and she falls asleep and then the prince wakes her up. Like that's pretty much Snow White. But like those last two things happen in the last five minutes of the movie. Yeah. It's like an hour and 10 minutes of literal nonsense. <laughs> I'm talking, I'm talking the yodel song and the rub-a-dub-dub oh. uh, like hand Put washing song or whatever. It. Like just literal waste of time movie. <laughs> and then you go f- and, the, and then you get the apple, the death, the witch death, and the resurrection all in five minutes. And then the movie's over. Like th- that escalated quick. That escalated quickly. <laughs> I mean, that really got out of hand fast. Uh, Snow White's a trash movie. The death oh, is super not important to the movie. Uh, I'm agreeing with you. Uh, Emily and Michael, do you all agree? Yes, this totally. time. Totally. I will say though, rewatching the scenes, the the part with like the the vultures just like looking down on her. Like, oh, so morbid though. It's like she's about to get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, good luck. Um, but yeah, completely agree on this one for sure. All right. Well, let's move on to the next matchup then. It is the number four seed Bing <laughs> Bong versus number 13. Arlo's dad. All right. I might have to crack my knuckles a little bit for this mm-hmm. one because we get to talk about one of my least favorite characters in the <laughs> Disney universe dying permanently. Hopefully. We don't know. He might come back in Inside Out too. You never, never know. know. What did Bing Bong do to you? I'm so confused. <laughs> okay, but Bing Bong did a lot of things. We have established on this podcast that Bing Bong is a suspicious individual with questionable actions and suspect motives for everything that he does. We do. And, and suddenly, we're supposed to be really sad that, that he has died. Uh, and like here, we're going back to Thanos here. <laughs> okay, here we go. Bing Bong and Joy fall into this pit. It's the memory dump. It was the name of it. So I guess this yep. is where memories go to be permanently forgotten. And Bing Bong and Joy, and apparently the wagon that Bing Bong used to live in, uh, are in there as well. 
And as time goes on, these things disintegrate. But like, how long does something have to be in there to disintegrate is my question. And, and it seems like there's a lot of stuff in there that has been in there for a very long time. So mm-hmm. Bing Bong ends up in there for like five minutes and he's, and he's disintegrating. Um, so, so here's what I'm positing to you, that the Inside Out universe and the Frozen oh, no. 2 universe and the Avengers universe are all one and the same. And Bing Bong and Olaf in Frozen 2 both get snapped by Thanos. Oh my because they all all those characters are disintegrating all of a sudden very suddenly i think that i would agree with this theory or hop onto it if it weren't for the fact that inside out also exists outside of riley's mind and if half the population of san francisco disappeared we would have known about it outside of riley's head maybe i'm just holding out hope for <laughs> elsa to appear in uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness <laughs> is what I want. I want I want Atta Holland to be like infiltrated by the Kree or something. Sure. Okay, so so here's another thing about Bing Bong and his death. Okay, it's a self sacrifice, but mm-hmm. is it really necessary? The boy was too heavy. What? Okay, exactly. What are the physics inside of Riley's brain? Because the islands are literally floating. Um, but then they suddenly, crumble and fall. Uh, but, they, but they were floating. They were floating for a long time, and, and when they're dead, they're still floating, and then, yeah, so okay. they, slowly, okay. they slowly crumble. I don't know, but listen, for there to, like, this wagon to be just barely too heavy with Bing Bong inside to make it over the cliff, it just doesn't make sense. And the fact that, like, imagination fuels it, like, why don't you just imagine that Bing Bong has less mass? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Like, like <laughs> physics do not matter in your, in your own mind. Anyways, it just like, I don't, I just don't get it. It's just not realistic. Okay. It's just not a realistic. Sure. That's what I'm trying to say. Sure. Um, it's not sure. sad to me either. Um, I don't, I don't really know a lot of, a lot of the deaths on this bracket. I think like characters are supposed to kind of like represent themes and like the death of the character is the death of an idea. Kind of, and we'll talk about yep. that with Ellie, actually. So, like, is Bing Bong supposed to be, like, the death of youth and, like, the death of, like, innocence, maybe, and, like, the death of imagination? Yeah, basically. It's, like, the death of childhood innocence, right? Because he dies when she's on her way to, like, run away. This is her leaving her, like, past behind, her past life behind, and along with it, all innocence. So if Bing Bong is disintegrating in real time, why is his wagon also not disintegrating in real time if both are born from imagination? We got to get Pete Doctor on the phone, dude. We got to ask Big Pete, Pixar Pete. All of these, all of these reasons are reasons Bing Bong death is trash and forced and does not make any sense. I will say, I will say there is a very sad moment that precedes that when Joy is looking at the memories and when she realizes that Joy and sadness must live cooperatively. Yeah. The walk down like memory lane of Riley's like most treasured moments or those like that. That was such a great part of this sequence. And uh, hearing a comedic actress like Amy Poehler uh, Mm -hmm. have this outpouring of sadness and emotion. Very powerful. Very powerful moment. But but it's all 
uh, forgotten very soon because of how terrible the de- death of Bing Bong was executed. <laughs> so Bing Bong's going up against Arlo's dad, which is another death that kind of like is just, eh, it's just eh to me. What? Uh, Dude. This, okay, so here's, here's the reason why. And I mean, you might kind of like know the prologue or intro to The Good Dinosaur better than I do, but Arlo's dad is kind of like one of those hard dads that's like, you know, quote unquote, man up and like, you know, overcome your fears and like you have to overcome them. And there's that touching moment during the Firefly sequence where you're like, where he's like, see, like not everything that seems scary is scary, which is true. But he's kind of like running Arlo into the ground and like forcing him to do this weird like sprint by a raging river in the middle of a thunderstorm and, you know, like falls over and uh, Arlo's like, like it, I'm not you. <laughs> like, I'm not you. I don't have that fearlessness yeah. that you have. And I like it's like yeah. a moment of realization for for the dad. Yeah. Dad was about to turn his whole act around and then got sweeped. Whoop. <laughs> Whoop. <laughs> Dude. Okay. Put aside the fact that like this toxic hypermasculinity is prevalent in Arlo's dad, right? And that's that's kind of the point of this movie is to juxtapose like Arlo from his dad and his dad being so hard on him, but you can have these fears, you can be this way and you can still, you know, I don't want to, it's not fit in, but you still have something to contribute. Like Arlo's whole thing is that he doesn't feel like he has anything to contribute because he's so afraid of everything. And he ends up learning both from the experience of his like dad's death and all of these things that he can fear is that there's a place for him. There's a moment in this death that everything clicks for everyone. And it's when Arlo's dad realizes what's about to happen and gives up trying to climb that cliff. And they give us that eye contact. Arlo's dad is like climbing. He looks over to the river. The river's rushing and he looks back. <laughs> I can't even say it without like... <laughs> wanting to scream he like looks back and like makes eye contact and then the wave hits him and it goes black and then the best part is they make you sit with it like what whoa that just happened black screen for like way longer than you think it's gonna be fade back in tombstone and then life moved on crazy this is this is why do they have to hit the pedal to the metal like that, dude? I'm going to choose Arlo's dad's death because it does impact Arlo and kind of like set the stage for his uh, character growth and gives him a little bit of a backstory, kind of a scar emotionally. Um, Bing Bong really doesn't have any solid relationships at all. I mean, he develops kind of a <laughs> friendship with Joy and she is sad that Bing Bong died, but... His death really was not very impactful on the story. Like Riley wasn't like, oh my God, Bing Bong died inside of my mind. Um, let me try and remember him for a little bit here or something like that. Uh, yeah, Bing Bong, no. Bing Bong ain't it. Yep, I agree. Arlo's dad is definitely moving on. We can talk more about it next round. Emily and Michael, the physical reaction to that choice seems to tell me that you were going to go the other way. Yeah, I was definitely going to go with Bing Bong. Partly now, knowing that Chris hates Bing Bong, I would have loved to have seen him talk about it more. But (laughs) um, no, so one of the notes that I have is that, you know, like I talked about how he like symbolizes like the end of, you know, childhood or whatever. But it's also the fact that by 
Bing Bong sacrificing himself that allows Riley to forever have joy in her life because if Joy wasn't able to get out from the depths of dump. her, then she would never have joy. And like the whole like if you like pull apart inside out and just watch like Riley's story, it's like her like going through this, you know, thing. She's sad and you know, it's because Joy is not where she's supposed to be. So if Joy never came back, then like who knows what Riley could have done or gone or whatever so that's why i would have picked ding bong but it's all good so i agree with both of y'all <laughs> uh, i had to go back and watch arlo's dad stuff um not gonna lie i'm not a i'm not a fan of that movie overall i don't think it's a greatly made movie um it's definitely towards the bottom of pixar in my opinion but i mean it it definitely made me feel a lot more than bing bong i i inside out <laughs> at all i i don't find a lot of i'm with chris i don't find a lot of sense with any of it and bing bong in particular it's just like i'm, I'm completely with what chris said it's like what are the laws of gravity here like did this really have to happen couldn't this can he just like made himself weightless or he's imaginary there like there's no limit to what bing bong should have been so so yeah, I definitely agree with both y'all. I will say that um, I, I'm sure that Chris hated this. Actually, I have two things to say. Bing bong. Uh, the uh, the very last line where he says, "Take her to the moon for me." Okay, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. And then also I gag every time. And then here also, uh, Bing bong is played by Richard uh, Kind. Richard Kind. Yep. Richard Kind is also Molt from Bugs Life, and Molt is the greatest character. Okay, so like this is another aspect of it is that Richard Kind, time and time again, plays unlikable side characters. And so, I mean, wait a minute. Molt's a great likable. No, no, he's supposed to be like a slimy, like, this guy. No, ah, no, no. he's the bumbling idiot. He's the bumbling idiot of Bugs Life. I need you to go watch Bugs Life again because Molt is one of the greatest characters. All right, let's move on to the next matchup. It is the number five Ray from Princess and the Frog versus the number 12 Hector from Coco. Uh, Hector from Coco. Hector is the skeleton that is trying to cross over from the land of the dead into the land of the living uh, and different disguises. Can't ever do it because his family is forgetting about him. He's not on the ofrenda. So he can't get through because no one remembers him. If you don't... if there's no one else to remember you, you end up kind of disappearing. And we see that with the homeboy that was in the hammock uh, that gave Miguel and Hector a shot of tequila before he disappeared into the ether. Did he get snapped away too? Who knows? All these Are all these fools getting snapped away? Marvel really ruined every movie of people just like disappearing, right? Because now it's snapped. Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars A New Hope. Uh, yeah, and so Hector is already dead. We're in the land of the dead, but we learn how Hector died. And it was that Ernesto de la Cruz poisoned him. So there's this like scene at Ernesto's party in which this is revealed and all the dots are connected that Hector was really the writer and the performer of all of Ernesto's biggest hits. And he wanted to quit the tour to go back and be with his family because he missed them so much. The irony in that is that the family thought he abandoned them for music and never came back, which is why Miguel's family hates music is because they lost Mama Coco's dad over it. 
In reality, he was killed. And Hector was always told that he died from food poisoning from eating bad chorizo. But it turned out that the shot that he took on his way out after Ernesto de la Cruz was like begging him to come back. And he's like, okay, before you leave, how about a drink on our memories or whatever? And they, he takes the shot. It was poison. He dies in the street. And as he's dying, Ernesto says, it must have been the chorizo that you ate. And that's that story, that legend of how Hector died, even though he was poisoned and the dots are connected in the middle of the movie. And that's when Ernesto turns into being the bad guy. That's how that death scene went out. Ray is the firefly from Princess and the Frog. And he dies. <laughs> I'm so dumb. It's so good. What are you it's talking so about? Dumb. The, the entire, the, the frustrating part, the only, I mean, Ray and Dr. Facilier, who we'll talk about soon, die within a span of like 10-ish minutes. They both go out. Less, probably less, like three. So, so Ray realizes, everyone realizes what's happening, that the Naveen that's on the float is not the real Naveen, obviously. And if he marries, uh, what's her name? Big Daddy's daughter. <laughs> that uh, the, the curse will, will happen and everyone remains frogs. And that's not, we can't have that, of course, because who wants that to remain a frog? So... Naveen is in a box which happens to be on the float, which is very convenient to make sure that that frog stays there and the frog would remain the frog. Ray comes up to free him. And when he does, calamity ensues and they enter into this like church area and Ray uh, confronts fake Naveen or I guess frog Naveen confronts fake Naveen. Uh, and Ray is able to get his hands onto the little charm voodoo necklace that is kind of controlling this entire curse he's able to bring it to the cemetery where tiana's waiting for him because they know that they need to like break the curse with this idol necklace and uh when he does he is then confronted by the shadow monsters and the shadow monsters appear all over the cemetery and he's able to light literally light them up if the, he touches them with any sort of the air he says something about like he makes a butt joke and it's really awful in this moment. And he goes and lights up all of the shadow monsters, burns holes in them. And then he gets straight up backhanded by Dr. Facilier. Dr. Facilier walks up, Ray's on the ground. We see Dr. Facilier's face and you just hear a crunch with the step. Bye bye, Ray. Ray is done. So Ray is good. Done. I love, I love that. that. It's like, it's like Ray. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a, it's a great, great, like, it's a great, like, off-screen death. We Off have like the death. gunshots. We have like right? the gunshots, but right? To have it, but like to have it, face, like in your face, it's like just get that. You just get that that crunch. It's good. So that's but, it's good. But, so that's, but then, but then like, like his body, his body he's like he's like not really fully dead, and he's like like looks normal. Just just he has some like kind of bent. He's bent out. He's bent out. He's bent out of shape. A little bent out of shape. And and when Ray dies, when Ray dies, his spirit, his spirit. I forms guess, a star. Forms a star. And he is able to go is join. Able to go join his love, his which was love, a star. Which was a star. And it looks like they're holding hands. Ray is a bug. Listen, Ray is a bug. Here's what happened. Six billion years ago, a star was created. And at that exact moment, exact moment that Ray was sent down the river 
in his Viking funeral leaf boat. <laughs> the light from that star reached Earth. It was just perfect timing. There is, there is grounds for this in physical reality. The odds are astro- astronomical, but physically, I think it could happen. All that being said, it's the crunch that does it for me. Ray is going to move on. Yeah, I'm fully with you. Uh, Coco gets a lot of love on this podcast, uh, so <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay sending it home in the first round uh, today. No, uh, Ray is really one of the those like perfect characters to kill at the end of your movie. He's like a sidekick that that is very like pure at heart, um, kind of like a almost like a naivety about him uh, that makes yep. his death. Like just heartbreaking enough that it's not one of your heroes, but it's someone that you'll remember and you care about. So Ray will advance. Uh, Emily and Michael, do you guys agree with Ray moving on here? It looks like a no. Emily might not ever listen to our show ever again. No, I don't agree. I I don't know. Like for, okay, so I am like a true crime junkie, and just the story of Hector's death would be fantastic Netflix documentary. And like to have the family interview and just have them talk about how like I thought he was a you know this douchebag who left the family for our music and then like all of a sudden there was this realization like I would eat that up so just solely for that reason like oh my gosh yeah, I would love to be able to have that I mean like I don't want anyone to die but like I would love to like see that play out in a documentary of you know just them going through like you know like the like the dateline specials you know where they like mm. they slowly like hint at who it could be and they're like in your, oh my gosh it would be oh it'd be perfect the d true hollywood story of Hector. i was just gonna say e true hollywood story. uh that that belongs on disney plus like a like an edit re-edit of coco for sure all right let's hop over to the other side of the bracket where we have number two mufasa versus number 15 quasimodo's mom what a great matchup. This is an this is an incredible matchup for me. This is like uh, setting up the future of children <laughs> matchup here. So obviously you got Mufasa. And if if Bambi's mom isn't the first Disney death that comes to mind, it's definitely Mufasa, especially for people that are of our generation. Uh Lion King is a very overrated movie but Mufasa's death is not an overrated aspect of that movie. It is one of the best parts of that movie. Yes. Much like the death of Tadashi, it occurs at like the like 35, 40 minute mark of the movie where you have got a lot of time with the character that dies and the character that they end up uh, developing a connection with. So that death is kind of still like an establishing moment for your hero but still hits you really, really hard. Um, you've got a lot of things tied up in that death. You've got Scar wrapped up in there. You've got it's the betrayal of a brother in a power grab move. Yep. Uh, you've got the guilt of Simba, where he thinks that he was responsible for the death of his father. Um, and you you've just kind of got the sadness itself of losing your father, who was such a role model to Simba, and yeah. the idea of you know. He lives in you is the the theme of the Lion King. Not not in Bambi life. though. She doesn't live in Bambi. She does not. In in the world of Bambi, Bambi's mom became a carcass and decomposed <laughs> into the earth and probably provided a lot of food and nutrients for a lot of worms and insects. Probably. Quasimodo's mom. 
So, so, so Quasimodo's mom is like a nameless character, but she is a gypsy woman. Yep. And she has a baby, and that baby is Quasimodo. And Judge Claude Frollo... The baby gets named Quasimodo because... It's not named yet. No. Judge Frollo names it Quasimodo, which stands for like half-developed or something like that. It's pretty messed up. But anyways, baby who would eventually be named Quasimodo. Uh, Judge Frollo rolls up on this gypsy woman and the baby. Um, She runs away from him. He rides her down on a horse um, to the steps of Notre Dame. The cathedral's not open, which I don't know if that's a thing. Like the cathedral night, right? And you think they close up? And the um, the priest archdeacon. Yeah, the archdeacon is like down the street or like in a house next door or something. Right, and so she knocks on the door and she says, "Sanctuary, sanctuary." we need sanctuary." And And he's like putting on his slippers. Takes a little bit of time to get to the door, (laughs) and by the time that he does, it's game over. So Judge Frollo uh, backs her up against the stairs, and he. He kicks her. Drop, he grabs dude. the baby and kicks her in the gives her the boot. Dude, this is Sparta. Yeah. And it's one shot. Hits her head on the staircase and she's she gone. Night night. Game night, over. Night night. Um pretty like intense sequence that nighttime. Um there is a really really intense choral suite. It's like chamber choir singing in Latin <laughs> like as the sequence <laughs> is happening. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> so good um i like that this moment establishes how cruel judge claude frollo is this is he was kind also of like, it was going to be double death he was going to drown the baby and then archdeacon was like you've done it in front of everyone and it's all the statues with their like the bulging eyes, eyes. Notre Dame. Yeah. They're, they're just side-eyeing judge <laughs> yeah. claude frollo they're like <laughs> um yeah, so that aspect is powerful. And like, yeah, it sets up kind of the the time period that this movie is based in where the church is important and like you have to do what the church says, which um, complicates things as mm-hmm. the movie goes on. And it adds to his death at the end, which we'll talk about. The place that this death is coming up short to me is that it never really is impactful on Quasimodo. Right. He doesn't he find out. You're right. He has no awareness of it whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and like Quasimodo does learn at the very, very end. Like Judge Frollo is like, I should have killed you like I killed your mother. And Quasi He's like, basically oh. like, huh? 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 What? And then like Judge Frollo dies and there's no, yeah, there's no like Quasi getting super mad about it. So he like delivers the death blow, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I got Mufasa here. I think it's better in pretty much every way. That Quasimodo's mom death, I would say, is very underrated Disney death, but it's not going to beat Mufasa. You know what's so <laughs> underrated about Quasi's mom's death is that she's on screen just dead for like the entire scene. She's just like on the stairs dead. And then Archdeacon comes out and he's just holding her dead. He says, like, you've spilled blood on the stairs. She's dead in his arms, like just the corpse of Quasi's mom the entire time as Frollo's like debating whether or not to drown this baby. Like we see dead mother the entire time. It, it, it's awful. But you also get that with Mufasa. He is dead at the bottom of this gorge and you have Simba like trying to physically wake him up. Anytime that a character, especially our hero, cries out 
for a, like their loved one or, or the death of whoever's in the scene, that's going to take a huge toll on the audience watching, right? Like we're now very invested because we can hear the devastation in the voice. Bambi does it with Bambi's mom. He's screaming out mother. He's asking where mother is. Same thing here. We get the dad. You watch World of Color at DCA. Halfway through that show, the lights go out and Simba's just screaming for dad. And you're like, why is like California Adventure trying to make me sob in the middle of the park right now? Are you joking? It is very memorable. It is extremely iconic. It is sticks with you. It changes the course of the, the movie. It gives Simba his hero fault, flaws and faults and all of that good stuff that he has to kind of reconcile with. And then it also is the scene of decept- deception, of betrayal, of devastation. I like that. I think this is a great Disney death. I'm agreeing with you, Emily and Michael. Did we get it right? Yeah, this time you did. So. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. Like, I think, like you said, for our generation, like the first death you think of is also. So I agree. I mean, it's like, honestly, when I rewatched it, it, it's like a cinematic experience. Like the score, all of the action that goes from, you know, him trying to save his son to the betrayal that basically writes the rest of the movie Simba having to overcome his trauma of thinking that it was his fault and then obviously having at the end to face it with his uncle Scar I mean it's chef's kiss it's just it's perfect long live the king such a great like death blow uh, line it's very good let's move on to the next matchups number seven coral versus the number 10 Tala so Coral from Finding Nemo, I talked about this a lot in the saddest Pixar moment bracket. Uh, I went over almost beat by beat because I was so in love with the score of this moment where it is, you know. I'm going to call you. I'm going to call you Nemo. It's so good. Sitting in sitting in uh Bay Bridge traffic last <laughs> week, bumper to bumper, waiting for the light to turn. There's like a million cars around me, and it's just like bah, 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 bah. Next, next track is Heffalumps and Woozles DJ YouTube remix. You're just going from the low of the low to the high of the high. Yeah, this I mean, this moment is shocking. It's it sets the course for the rest of the movie, obviously, with Marlin's trust issues with the ocean, with what can happen, with the fear of the unknown. Uh, Nemo's pretty unaware. This tragedy causes this, you know, deformation deformation in, in Nemo's fin. Uh, and it's his lucky fin. It's he's the survivor of the thousands of babies that they could have had. Uh, and his egg gets cracked on that side. And that's why his fin is is tiny. And, you know, it's it's a moment. Uh, Pixar up until that point dare I say didn't have that devastating long lasting effect in their movies and I feel like Finding Nemo was the first I would like to posit uh, Boo and Sully's goodbye as like the first super emotional moment 
in a Pixar movie. Sure. <laughs> Emotional, yeah, for sure. Uh, but like Pixar goes for like- When she loved me? Hello? Yeah, but that's not, that's like a longer moment. Like now Pixar does like the shock moments, like the moments, like, you know, <laughs> I guess Bing Bong is kind of drawn out. Remember me is kind of drawn out. All right, yeah, I'm unfounded. My My claim was unfounded and you called me out about it. Anyways, I digress. Curl gets eaten by a barracuda. And it's really sad because uh, now Marlon is a single father of one child instead of thousands. And that sets up the entire storyline of Finding Nemo. Tala is Moana's grandmother who plays a very quintessential like elder woman who is like encouraging of their grandkids to kind of bend the rules and you know, defy their their parents because they know better than their parents. And I wish that I had a a comparable uh, character to that. But I feel like that's a trope of some movies where the the grandparent. I got a great one. I got a great one for you, Johnny Tsunami. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's a perfect one. That's almost too spot on for this. It makes me uh, think that this is a here's trope another for specific one. Tis movies. The season now. Halloween Town. Great. Halloween Town's actually even better because I think that's exactly what was in my mind. But Johnny Tsunami is the exact, exact movie. Um, Grandma knows. Grandma knows that the the family uh, heritage revolves around being voyagers, and she wants to encourage Moana's relationship with the ocean. The ocean has kind of chosen her as a baby, and she's encouraging that. And she leads Moana to find out that they're, they've been voyagers. She finds the boats uh, and she's trying to explain to, to dad and mom that they're, they were voyagers and she needs to return the heart of Tafiti. And dad says, no. And he tosses the rock into the bushes. Moana goes to the bushes to get the rock, finds grandma's cane. And somehow grandma's no longer anywhere near the cane. But she's somewhere up at the village where mom and dad just came from because then somebody comes down and says, like, your highness, it's, it's your mother. And she's now up in the village, like passed out in the bed. Um, another off-screen death, at, which is very, it's a, it's a powerful moment. It's not so much of a, like a devastating moment. It's an empowering moment in which like Moana is setting sail her mom has given her her blessing silently basically by helping her pack for this journey moana's on a boat she's trying to battle these waves and she turns around and the hut in which her grandma was laying on her deathbed all the lights go out and there's this big motion of energy that goes over the the jungle of this island and into the water splashes this glowing manta ray that it looks like a you know, this is going to be very stereotypical of me, but like very tribal-esque in design. You know, you would see this as like a tattoo of sorts. Um, splashes into the water, swoops under Moana's boat, and that's kind of her signal that like she can do this. She can go far. This is how far she'll go. She's going to have not only the ocean behind her, but now her grandmother is always going to be with her. And it's, her grandmother is also going to be with her on this journey. It's a big moment. It's really nice. Uh, but that's what it is. It's a big moment that's really nice. Coral's death scene is my best Disney death in this matchup because of how it sets the tone for the rest of the movie. And really, like, Marlon doesn't learn his lesson 
until the very end of this movie. Like usually like there's this moment of realization maybe three quarters of the way through. But Finding Nemo is a long movie. I don't know if anybody's watched it very recently, but this is a long movie. And Marlon doesn't learn his lesson until Nemo gets trapped in a in a, a net with other fish. Because at that point, he's abandoned, you know, all hope. He, he like he's given into fear and he has to like Nemo's like, Dad, trust me. You have to trust me. Lucky Finn. Boom. Moment clicks where we have or 10 minutes from from rolling the final credits. Uh, it's it just sets the journey off on a on a way that, you know, Moana was going to be Moana no matter what. Her grandma gave her that extra strength. But it's such an insignificant moment of that movie, in my opinion, until she returns as force ghost. Uh, grandma halfway through the movie uh but that's not her death so i'm going with coral i think coral is a pretty strong seven here um i think she's more like a three or four probably for me uh the death of tala is unique on this bracket um because i don't know like you said it's not really shocking you know like people of old age die like that's what they do and so i don't think it really surprised anyone that this happened it was an inciting incident of sorts for moana in that it was the kind of like straw that broke the camel's back to send her off on her journey sure you kind of have to ask yourself though like would would she have eventually got out of there anyway um had this not happened whereas like if coral had not been eaten <laughs> though there's already the establishment that the ocean is on moana's side right she was right. as a baby right. we see that the ocean and her have this relationship was it she would have figured it out she would have figured it out sorry coral grandma. like the i mean the the barrier reef that coral and marlin buy a, an enemy home in like if there was no barracuda attack it would just be like a normal Normal day in the life of a, a giant family of clownfish <laughs> going to school. Right. You know, going in and out of the anemone all day long. It would have been a pleasant life for all of them. Uh, so I, I'm with you on Coral advancing. I'm sorry, Emily and Michael, like we're not giving you a lot of work here. And you also don't agree with anything we're doing. I really don't. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know. I think the thing about Tala is from I guess, I don't know if it's like a theory or whatever, but it's the fact that she has the heart the whole time. And the second she gives it to Moana, she passes away. So it's like this heart is keeping her alive. And she knows that Moana isn't ready up until that point. So she's like, okay, like my girl's got it. Like she's ready to go. So here, go, go find Maui, go save the world kind of a thing. And then also the, like not to bring Happily Ever After back, but the best- (laughs) is literally when she flies up the castle and it's just it's it's just it's so epic and had she not passed we wouldn't have that moment so you know i i kind of that's that's where uh that's where i stand i'll give you points where you say that like she was holding on to life but i don't think it was necessarily the heart that was she was like she had a mission she had something she needed to fulfill which was transferring of the heart so I don't want to give the heart to Feedy too much credit. I I will say that her grandma was strong as hell because she was like, I just have to have to hold out. I have to hold out until Moana is old enough and she can set on this journey and I can safely give her when I can trust her this this heart. Um, 
which he does, which is great because had she not given up this rock, then we would have never gone on this journey. So I see what you're saying. Uh, had Coral not died, we wouldn't have Finding Nemo. Nemo would have gone lost. He would have been a, a faceless fish in the school of a thousand of brothers and sisters. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I totally like understand the like impact of happily ever after on your thoughts in any way because uh out there quickly went from like a song i don't even care about to like an all-time favorite simply because of that show 100 percent. because yeah when you see him up there and like i just every single time i go and he like bangs the bell i always have to bump the person next to me like in like sync with me oh my gosh i'm i'm literally gonna cry i can't <laughs> okay so let's move on to the next matchup then it's number three ellie from up versus number 14 judge claude frollo from hunchback of notre dame this is this is the matchup this is the first round matchup right here for me yeah this okay. is good ellie <clears throat> three seed um up is not a very good movie up is a very good intro to a much better movie, yep. uh, a movie that could have been, we, or a short. If there's short anything film. that we've ever said the most times on this podcast is that Up is better off as a short. Like, I don't even know where to begin with this. The music, obviously, you've got that uh, married life suite that is just this is just so good in every way. It starts off very jazzy with a little bit of uh, woodwind, I think it is. It's like a, not a saxophone, but uh kazoo or hurdy-gurdy i don't know <laughs> didgeridoo who knows you need a need a musician to chime in um and then it slows down to a piano when the more tragic moments start so they spend the first few minutes of this movie setting up these two kids ellie very like full of energy and loud and adventurous um and carl quiet kid who seems to be really afraid of things but um is very like enamored with ellie's sense of life so uh you get this montage of them growing old together them doing various like daily life things hence the name married life for the sequence uh they're going to work together they're painting their living room together painting their mailbox together uh at a picnic looking at clouds together uh, and then, and then she dies and it's really sad. So I think this is kind of one of those moments where, yes, we do get a solid introduction of the character. We know her, we know her character traits. She's very youthful, colorful, adventurous, fun, humorous, whimsical. Um, we learned that about her in a very short time and Carl is the opposite. And so she is providing all of those things to Carl's life. And the minute she passes away, Carl loses all of those things. His life is the opposite of all of those after he loses her. Right. It just, it's, just really, it's just really sad to see that play out. And I think anyone who uh, loves another person will see themselves somewhere in this sequence, whether yeah. it's with Carl's energy or with Ellie's energy and... Um, I, I see I see myself in Carl as like uh, loving someone who just provides a lot of energy and like uh, happiness and joy to my life sure. when when I'm normally the one who's kind of just like going about my business. And if not for that person, I would probably just be sitting at home like Carl ends up doing uh, when he loses her. So it really kind of like 
is triggering a little bit when you start thinking <laughs> about maybe losing that person or having to leave that person. If, if you're someone who more identifies with Ellie, a very, very powerful sequence. Um, and it also kind of establishes the business that Carl needs to handle in the movie up. He needs to get all of that stuff back without her. Um, kind of just to become a more complete human and and also finish the legacy that she began. The way that the movie executes that is not very good, but sure. uh, it's it's a good it's a good concept. It's a good setup for a movie. You know, I love the setup of Up. Just the way that it's executed is not very good. Um, Judge Claude Frollo. Oof. So we talked about his setup a little bit with the death of death of Quasimodo's mom. He dies kind of like. Um, the witch in that it's like an act of God. It seems like he gets up on this little gargoyle thing and he has a death blow line that he uh, delivers to Esmeralda as her head is out over the ledge. He's going to do like straight up a medieval guillotine style execution, which is uh, symbolic in itself. Yep. And, and he says, and he shall smite the wicked and plunge them into the fiery pit. Um, and in the moment he raises his sword, you're like, he's talking about himself. He is the one who's doing the smiting. Uh, she is the one who is, is wicked. Uh, and then this thing begins to crack and he grabs onto it and it, it comes to life. These little like yeah. his eyes light up and its mouth lights up. Um, and it takes him into the fiery town square below the cathedral uh, and it kind of, it's like an ironic line at that point where he shall smite the wicked is God punishing Judge Frollo for his wickedness. Yep, that so was like, established at the very beginning. Like the, the God and his disciples had been looking at Frollo this entire time, had been watching him this entire time, right? And that's established when he drop kicks Quasi's mom and carries through the entire movie. Just so, just so good. So good. I think I... I called this out when we were talking about Pirates of the Caribbean when, when the mermaid one, which one's that one? I don't the know which fourth one. fourth one on Stranger Tides. I love a movie that, that does a little bit of exploration of religion. It's fascinating sure. yeah. to me. And so the, the way that this death ties up into that just makes my brain happy, I guess. Okay. Um, also, Claude Frollo, one of the biggest POSs in, yes. in all of Disney. thousand percent. <laughs> Like this dude, uh, not only the death of a character, but the death of super toxic thinking, particularly toxic thoughts towards women. And so to see him plunge into the fire, it's like, thank God he is dead. Yep. Um, additionally, uh, Judge Claude Frollo has one of the worst haircuts in Disney history. <laughs> uh, this dude clearly cuts his own hair. And I know this because I attempted this during the pandemic when all the barbershops were closed. Uh, I tried to cut my own hair and I thought it looked really good. I like sent it around to pic pictures of people. I'm like, oh, I cut my own hair. Like I'm feeling, feeling super feeling fresh. fresh. I yeah. feel like I did a pretty good job. Uh, Julia got home and just started laughing at me. She's like, you look <laughs> like a choir boy. I'm like, okay, <laughs> go into the barbershop. Um, dude's haircut is awful. So the death of Claude Fullo is the death of an awful haircut as well. Mm -hmm. mm. Tough, uh, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to go with the upset here. I'm going with judge C Claude Frollo. Uh, Ellie's death, I think is a really great, like hero's death. Um, the way that the rest of the movie doesn't 
like use the momentum to do something great with it is, is sad to me. I uh, love the setup and the finale of Hunchback going with Frollo and the upset. I feel like you can draw a kind of parallel with uh, the death of Frollo and the death of Scar from Lion King, where it's all of these, like the Lion King is set up with the circle of life. Not only just with like the literal circle of life, like life, death feeds life again, which feeds death again. But also like what comes, what you, what you've done comes back to get you sort of circle. And like Scar realizes that because he dies the exact same way that Judge Frollo does. This kind of cliff fire moment falls to their death. Um, I guess Scar falls and then gets like attacked by the hyenas, but same same kind of situation, right? Same with Frollo. He does this horrible act. He's literally told that God's watching him. He tries to like repent by taking on Quasi and raising him as his own, but he does it with all of these like caveats like, okay, but he has to live here and I'm only going to just like check on him. And that comes full circle at the end, quite literally with his like smiting and this like guillotine effect in which it backfires on him. So it's interesting that Frollo made it, but Scar didn't, right? But I guess it's because also Scar's in a movie in which Mufasa dies. <laughs> and so if you're thinking about like memorable yeah. deaths, Mufasa is probably going to take the cake the entire time. But I just think that I've always thought about those as like parallels, similar kind of arcs for our villain in which there's this like deception, like Quasi doesn't know that his mother was killed by Frollo. Simba doesn't know that his dad was killed by Scar. Like there's this whole, this whole thing. I'm going to throw it to our tiebreakers. I'm going to go with Ellie. We say that Up is a not good movie because it should just be a short in which the short is fantastic. And it's fantastic because you get to kind of see this, this relationship that is extremely relatable to the audience. Uh, and not only do you get to see this devastating death that kind of puts this realization into your mind of like live life to its fullest, go on those adventures. Uh, because life is only so limited. But also in the scope of the movie, just like my argument for Coral, this changes the trajectory of Carl's life and like sets up his arc and sets up why he's so reluctant to change and anything because he's been devastated by change and, you know, adventure had stopped with Ellie that kind of sets the movie on its course. And so if I'm going to say that about Cora, I'm going to say about Ellie, which means that we're going to go to our tiebreakers, Emily and Michael. Um, so I am definitely going to go with Ellie on this one. I think that her story is just so human. And the fact that you see them go from being these, you know, sweethearts to showing the ups and the downs, like with her going you know, about her pregnancy and all of that stuff. And then, you know, she, she does live a full life, but I think that because it is just so human and relatable, like you were saying, like it just, it's more, you can, it's just more like not personal, but just in the sense that like someone is going to be able to feel that. And that is where all of the real men cry is in that scene. Like, <laughs> 
literally it's so sad and heart-wrenching where as you know like Frollo like did he deserve it yeah it's like I don't know if you guys are like into Broadway at all but you know in Chicago the the song like he had it coming like it's literally that was him like he just he needed to be out of so him falling yeah I agree but I think that Ellie's is just it's it's too emotional versus the the drama of Frollo I don't know what do you what do you think oh it's definitely Ellie it, there's sorry Chris but it, it's definitely Claude Frollo that it was epic like it was cool because you wanted it to happen but and I don't think Up is particularly a great movie, like start to end, but to start out with something so emotional that hits you so hard, it's hard to even live up to, like live up to that for the rest of the movie. And just the entire progression from start to finish, you know, the happy times, the sad times, it, it just, it hits you. And when I think of, the definition of best Disney death. I mean, from start to finish of that entire montage, it's like you said, it could, it could literally be the best Pixar short ever made. So I I don't even really have a doubt that it's, that it's going to move on here. All right. Let's round out this round of 16 with the number six, Kala's baby versus number 11, Dr. Facilier. So three matchups here, back to back to back in which, at least one of the seedings happens at the beginning of the movie and kind of changes the trajectory of that film. And that's the argument that I just gave for Coral. That's the argument I gave for Ellie. Here's where Kala's Baby differentiates. Kala's Baby is this, this scene with big, big Philly C, Philharmonic C, screaming over the the speakers of your TV system as we are watching the parallel lives of these two babies, of these two worlds, one family unfolding in front of us. The death of a parent in one, of parents in one, the death of a baby in another. Kala's baby, uh, we we are established, Kala's baby is established as being a curious baby. Uh, when we see this baby, uh, there's a like chameleon that is walking by and the baby wants to run after it, but the parents uh, grab the baby back, right? And put him back in his lap. Tarzan is a baby who is just as curious, but like is somehow is similar in that, in that vein, but just can't move around as well. Like points out where they should build the tree house <laughs> is able to survive this like Jaguar attack, like all of these things, right? Jaguar ends up killing Kala's baby because Kala's baby runs after a frog in the middle of the night. And that was established early on when he tried to go after the chameleon. So we knew that this baby would eventually get out to chase something that it's interested in. Very, very easily distracted. Does, ends up getting chased down by this jaguar. Parents wake up realizing that the baby's gone and you just kind of hear the screeching of this baby after the roar of the jaguar it's kind of like an off-screen shot right uh and the baby's dead but it happens very quickly and we don't mourn it for very long because after that there's some there's a scene of the the gorillas on like this kind of like migration path or they're walking somewhere and kala hears baby tarzan crying and then it's 
big Philly C. And Carl is just hauling, just hauling through the jungle, hauling through the jungle to get to this baby, right? All of a sudden, we forgot that this baby died. I brought this up at the beginning of the best baby bracket that I forgot that Kala's baby dies when we were talking about baby Tarzan because that is such an insignificant part. It does establish why Kala takes Tarzan in and kind of sets that up because Kala is mourning for the loss of her own baby and replaces her baby with Tarzan. But it's also so significant because we don't remember that Kala's baby dies. Dr. Facilier, after he backhands Ray and steps on his soul, he is then, <laughs> he then tries to negotiate with Tiana, who's in frog form, to give back this necklace. And he shows Tiana what she could have if he makes a deal with her. And that's Tiana's place. He transports her into what Tiana's place would be, would look like, would be as if she was there. She's back in human form. He's trying to tempt her into making this deal with the other side, basically. She even, he even brings up her dad, who's another Disney death in this. Uh, even though that's more of an inferred death, we don't actually see him die. But brings him back and says, oh, he worked his, his life away. He, he worked for you to have this, and he ended up dying over it. Don't you want to honor him in this way? All you have to do is make this deal. She stays strong. She says no, basically. He, pins her, he takes the, the necklace back from her, pins her down in her frog form, and then, like any frog would do, she distracts him, grabs the charm with her tongue, brings it back to her. He's in shock. He steps up. She breaks the, the idol and the shadow people come to get him. And there's this incredible visual scene of the idols taking the form of the tombstones around him. They're chanting the, are you ready? And he's like, no, I'm not ready. And he's trying to like negotiate his way out of it. And he's getting pulled into this the mouth of this massive idol at the end of the cemetery and ends up getting eaten up. And that's the death of Dr. Facilier. Ah, oh, man, this one's tough because it feels like the, the last one, but slightly different in that like Kala's baby didn't stick with me as much as Ellie's did. But Dr. Facilier is, is epic, but not as epic as Frollo's. Like Frollo is probably the most epic Disney death if we ever had that bracket. And I'll forget that I had even said this by that time that we do it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Call's baby just doesn't stick with me as hard. I'm going to go with Dr. Facilier. Dr. Facilier's death to me is that tweet that goes viral once in a while that reads, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own action. <laughs> and I love that. Facilier dies in that way. It's like he is this like loan officer <laughs> or mm -hmm. something. And he yeah. like uh, has got, he's got himself in too deep and it eventually consumes him. And like, that's a really realistic way for him to die. And he made it really far on our most relatable Disney villains bracket. And that was part of the reason he did. Kala's baby. Um, I'm with you that you don't linger on it for very long. Um, I think that that could be a more powerful moment, however, to someone who is a parent, sure. um, especially parents who have lost children before. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I don't have an appreciation for it yet, is what I want to say. Um, but I am going to advance it here because I think Kala is a really underrated character in Tarzan when we think about like this movie being about 
strangers like me and Tarzan and Clayton and, and Jane and all of that business, you, you sometimes forget that Kala has one of the most emotional like situations in the whole movie. Um, and her relationship sure. with Tarzan is uh, really a special one in, in that that mother-child relationship is unique in the Disney universe. And it's one uh, we got to remember once in a while. So I'm going with Kala's baby. So we're going to have a tiebreaker to end this episode. <laughs> oh, um, I kind of thought this was an easy one because kind of like what you said, like, <laughs> like Kala's baby, like, like, yes, it's sad, but like, it doesn't stick with you because it's just the whole time you're just focusing on like, okay, when is Tarzan coming? Like, when is the whole point of this movie? Whereas like, with, I don't know, I guess with Dr. Facilia, like, I think the, the way they did it was very cool. And I also just love the fact that he is trying to negotiate the entire time as he is just getting like sucked into this weird underworld and yeah, I I would have to go with Dr. Facilia on this one. I don't know. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. I definitely think that uh, Dr. Facilia getting got after, uh, you know, trying to finagle his way into uh, basically owning the city of New Orleans was pretty fair in the end. But, uh, you know, Jaguars got to eat too, so... <laughs> But you all are really into like the the uh food what it, that's not called the food pyramid what is it the food chain, food chain. yeah that, oh i mean i'm sure God. you're into the food pyramid as well <laughs> uh all right well that brings us to the end of part one and part two we'll be talking the elite eight all the way to crowning a champion and that elite eight looks like number one bambi's mom versus number nine tadashi down the brackets number 13 arlo's dad versus number five ray Across the brackets, number two, Mufasa versus number seven, Coral. And to round out the Elite Eight is number three, Ellie versus number 11, Dr. Facilier. Emily and Michael, thank you so much for joining us for part one. We are very excited to get back into this with you both on part two. Yeah, thanks for having us. Always a pleasure. All right, everyone, you know how to reach us. You got something to say about these deaths? Did we get something wrong? Uh, did did we miss one? Have we not talked about one that is really uh, memorable to you? Email us at mousemadnesspodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook. All of those channels are linked in the description of this podcast. And don't forget, you can finally subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash mousemadness. And we'd love to have you there. Till next time, fishies, catch you in the next episode.